You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. and welcome to episode 63 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm a little nervous today. Why is that? Well, I'm I'm preparing in less than an hour or so to go and um, do my first live stream video on Periscope app. What I know. Will you be live streaming. I'm intrigued. Well, given how much I love a video of myself, <laughs> imagine how thrilled I am. Um, I will be live streaming as part of the Ashet Australia initiative, which is called uh, and New Zealand, which is called Where I Write hashtag Where I Write, mm. um, and it's going to be. It's taking place from the first to the fourteenth of June. So you, if you miss me, there's still lots and lots of other authors that you can um, have a little sneak peek into their. <laughs> into their writing rooms yeah. and their writing lives. Um, it's very exciting. Yeah, look, it's it's exciting, but it's kind of uh, a little bit nerve-wracking. It's going to sit up on um, – there's a, a website dedicated to this, which is called whereiwrite.tv, so oh. it'll be sitting on the internet forevermore, whatever mistakes I make. It's <laughs> I such a great ever. idea. Well, it's I like, know. have you got your hair and makeup done? <laughs> oh, of course not, because, you know, do I do that on a regular basis? No. I am tidying my desk, though. I have to. I have okay. to confess. I had that thought of, do I just show it like it really is? And then I thought, no, nobody needs to see that. <laughs> nobody needs to see that. <laughs> so I am tidying my desk, and regular listeners will laugh because um, I often talk about the mess that I work in, and when they see my nice clean spaces, they'll be like, "You're right." <laughs> yes. And like, what about you? I'm very curious, though. I think I'm. I love being a sticky beak and seeing mm-hmm. where people write. Because everyone's so different. I know. I'm, I'm going to focus. I mean, you know, I'd love to be the kind of person that wrote in my garden because my garden mm. is so beautiful. Um, but, you know, as we've discussed uh, many, many times, I have the Pavlovian response to sitting at my desk. So mm. I'm going to have to, uh, you know, pretty much show it like it is, except it'll be slightly tidier. Um, <laughs> but, of course, I've been practising on Procrasty Pop. So I've had a couple of... <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I didn't... I had to practice using the app like I'd never used it before. So they said to me, you need to do some test stuff, you know. So I thought, well, I can't do a test pattern because I don't have one. So I've been doing test puppies. (laughs) So I've done done three videos of Procrasty Pup just like looking at me. Like he's just sitting there looking at me like, what are you doing to me, woman? Like it's hilarious. So I'm hoping he might be a little more active today when we're actually doing it, but we'll see. Anyway, I hope you get more views than Procrasty Pup. I'm not going to. How could I possibly? I'm get, my theory is if I just put him in as much as I can, then I'm going to get – because you can 
it's really quite interesting. People can heart you as the video progresses. So you, uh, if you like something, you don't just have to like like it once. You can like it like a billion times, as many oh. hearts as you want. And um, so I figure every time he appears, I'll get hearts. So yes. my theory, I'll just get him in as much as I can. Well, yeah. that's like with my cat Rex. You know, sometimes he walks over my keyboard and accidentally tweets stuff. And it's rubbish, <laughs> but he gets more response than I do. <laughs> That's the crazy part. Oh, it's like emer- emergency Norman on um, yes. on Twitter. Oh, that cat's got more followers than anyone I know. I know, but he's so cute. He anyway, cute. let us move on to the world please. of publishing and writing and blogging this week. There's so much happening. Goodness me. Well, I thought I thought I would start off with. Um, I went to the Sydney Town Hall to uh, listen to Matthew Weiner speak, and he is the creator of Mad Men and, you know, one of the key script writers of Mad Men, which is a fantastic show. You're either in it, into it or you're not, and once you're into it, you know, it's just fantastic. Do you watch it, Al? Um, I haven't ever got into it. I, really? I started – yeah, I know. It, it's the kind of show I feel like I should enjoy. Um, I watched it – I sort of started it a few years ago, like, you know, one of those situations, and maybe it was just the wrong time because I watched a couple of episodes and it just didn't really grab me. Mm. Um, but everyone I know that does watch it is obsessed by it. So yes. I can't help but feel maybe I should, you know, have another crack. Brilliant writing, brilliant yes. um, ideas. And I loved one of the quotes that he said was, if you can write, you can change your life. And I thought that that was so profound because I think it's so true. Mm. But equally, I loved the quote that he said uh, when he said, there are some times where p- when people want to see sophisticated culture and sophisticated art, and there are times when people just want to see shit blown up. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that is so true. And his point was, that's okay, you know, yeah. that's okay. Um, they both have their place in the world. So I quite and like that's that. why we have people who create both for those very reasons. Exactly. Mm. And, uh, but, but it was good. Um, but interestingly, I also, you know, found myself um, getting a little bit annoyed, to be honest. Oh, what, Valerie? No, not you. <laughs> Weed, I can't imagine it. Because he is a font of information, he is a genius, and he was just really interesting. He had lots of stories to tell, and he'd sort of get halfway through a story, and the interviewer would interrupt and oh. cut him off and throw in her two cents. Oh. And it was like, oh, my goodness, that why, at least let him finish his sentence. Mm. At least let him finish his story and then throw in your two cents, which is fine. Mm. But, you know, you don't stop someone when they're mid-thought, mid-flow, and, you know, it's a really good uh, idea that's coming out or a really good story that, you know, we're waiting, everyone in the town hall is waiting for the ending. I think that's also, I think that's a basic of interviewing. I I remember um, it's something that I think, that's unusual, I don't know who the interviewer was, but it's something that I think that you learn um, from mistakes Mm. not to do it again, particularly if you're recording interviews. I remember when I was sort of first starting out interviewing, I used to do it a lot because you kind of, you know, I got sort of carried away with the conversation Mm. aspect. And then I would go to transcribe my piece to try, you know, to pull the quotes out and I'd have half quotes everywhere. And that's when I realised you know, that it's a mistake. Don't do it. You know, I, I think it's something that you only do maybe once or twice before you realise that you've really got to let people say their piece. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess she wasn't an experienced interviewer because I suppose as journalists, we're so used to interviewing, we're so used to waiting for the gold and encouraging the gold to come out that you, you, let, you just let people talk longer than you would in conversation. 
That's very true. And I also think the interesting thing I think we've learned even from podcasting, and I, this was something that I, I think if I listen to my early podcast interviews, um, I used to uh-huh and yeah, mm-hmm and stuff a lot more than I do. Now, I, now I'm trying, I try to sit in absolute silence and I think it can be a little bit disconcerting for the person at the other end because you're not reacting. Yeah. But then when you listen back to it, it's so much clearer and way more interesting for the people who are actually listening to it. So I think that's something else to think about. Absolutely right. But moving on to something quite different. Yes. Yes. Uh, one of our listeners suggested that we talk about this on our podcast, and that was the recent furor uh, over Tracy Spicer claiming that The Guardian is exploiting freelance writers to produce branded content. And we'll put a couple of links there. This was, you know, written about in, in a number of places, but we'll put a couple of links in the show notes. But basically, Tracy Spicer... Um, got cranky because she was asked to write a, con- a branded content column on women's financial empowerment for ANZ, you know, the big bank, mm-hmm. for 14 cents per word. That's one four cents per word. Mm. And obviously there's some kind of um, confusion and misunderstanding or something like that because ANZ uh, publicly stated, no, people like Tracy Spicer and other write- uh, you know, working journalists should be paid MEAA rates, so Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance rates, which are more around 80 to 90 cents a word or thereabouts. But I think what this, uh, you know, she has brought this to the attention of everyone because one of the things that is increasingly happening these days is that the large organisations, whether it's ANZ or anyone else, are um, asking people, are, are really embracing the idea of content marketing, are really understanding that they need good quality content on their sites. So they're looking towards people to provide that content and they go to what they believe is a trusted provider, whether that's The Guardian or another media organisation or an agency that specialises in branded content like Newsmodo or King Content. And they go to those organisations because those organisations supposedly have the um, you know, editorial skills to get the content that's needed. And also they are a one-stop shop. You know, the, the ANZ then only have to deal with one organisation, one contact mm. as opposed to 20 journalists because they can just let the organisation deal with the 20 journalists. But what's interesting is another uh, post that was on Mumbrella about the trickle-down economics of content marketing. Now, this is interesting because it's going to be uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out because what they illustrated was that a big media company was doing some content marketing for a luxury client. And that big media company outsourced it to a particular, you know, uh, social media specialist. And that social media specialist then outsourced it to a fashion blogger. And that fashion blogger then outsourced it to some someone who lives in region, a student in regional Australia. Mm. And you can imagine each one of those people put that, their own margins on it. So the ultimate provider, the student in regional Australia, was probably getting, I don't know what they were getting paid, but considerably less than what the luxury brand was actually paying in the first place. Mm. So uh, it's something that I think we're going to see a bit of a rationalisation of in the industry as because once you get the the content back and you think gee I've paid a dollar for a word for this and you know my daughter at uni could have written it kind of thing mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have to pay a dollar a word for this so 
it's it's going to be fascinating to see whether this is viable, whether, you know, things can be outsourced and outsourced and outsourced, and if they are, whether the quality is going to remain and whether the brands are going to put up with it. It's not with it. Yeah, and I mean, the, the other thing is if you read the, the umbrella content, the contents, uh, sorry, the comments, I mean, I know don't read the comments is the <laughs> first rule of, of websites. However, if you read the comments on the Tracy Spicer piece, which um, we will put the link in the show notes to, there's a, um, a, a person in there who calls himself um, a marketer, uh, so basically anonymous, who is essentially saying, you know, why would I pay 93 cents a word for something when I can get it for 14 cents? Because at the end of the day, um, Tracy Spicer is not willing to do it for 14 cents a word, but chances are that there is someone who will. And I think that Tracy has done a great job of bringing attention to this because she is Tracy Spicer. Mm. But I think the other thing that needs to be thought about is the fact that there's an awful lot of people out there who are not Tracy Spicer, mm. who um, these are the rates they're being offered. This is what's being offered, um, mm. you know, across the board in a lot of places. And I think that that's something that probably needs to be rationalised at some point as well because, you know, writing a 1,000 words for $140 is not going to be um, a, a sort of you can't make a living doing that unless you're writing an awful lot of those every day. So, look, I think there's a lot of different models that people are trying to use to, you know, to make money from the internet. And I mean, at the end of the day, this is where the biggest issue comes. Everybody wants it for free. Everybody wants to read for free, but they want to be paid to write. And I think this is where the biggest problem of our age as far as, you know, freelance writing goes, you know, until people are prepared to pay to read, and that means all the freelancers out there as well, um, then, you know, where the, the rates for writing are going to remain really low. But I believe that it will be rationalised and I believe that large companies like ANZ have a risk management issue and they will, if they've got any brains, write it in their contract that they, it only gets that, that particular journal has to write it and does not outsource it. For branded content, I yeah. think that that's possible too. But there's an awful lot of content that's not branded as well. So that's, you know, that's another issue. Mm. Another issue for another day. Moving on to something very different. I came across a link that was nice and heartening, really, and I'm sure it'd be heartening for many people. It was, it's on Writer's Circle, and it's called Nine Famous Authors Rejected by Publishers. Oh, yay. <laughs> and it's always good sometimes to read this because you realise that people like C.S. Lewis had um, the Chronicles of Narnia turned out 800 times. Well, no, sorry, not, no. Not that particular. Not he was turned down 800 yes. times before selling a single piece of writing. Yes. 800. I mean, that's persistent. Persistent. Oh, I got it. You've got to take your hat off, don't you, to a man who's willing to, you know, do that. Absolutely. Mm. Jack Kerouac, you know, early critics were convinced that On the Road would fail, but, of course, millions of copies were sold. Mm. Rudyard Kipling, <laughs> the, San, <laughs> the San Francisco examiner said, I'm sorry, Mr. Kipling, but you just don't know how to use the English language. Mm. Nice. Nice. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> George Orwell. <laughs> um, it's impossible to sell animal stories in the USA, was the snippy response from one publisher to Orwell's Animal Farm. Oh. Yes, you know. So take heart because some of the world's greatest writers were rejected and rejected and rejected and uh, eventually they um, they won through. 
And look, I think it's, it ties in very neatly to a post that I actually wrote on my blog this weekend, having spent quite a bit of time with writers over the last few weeks, you know, because I actually left my office and went to, the, <laughs> went to the festival and stuff. You know, one of the questions that people kept saying to me that came up all the time was, you know, how do I work up enough confidence to actually send my writing out? Um, and it came up a lot. And so, you know, I, I had thought about it for a little while and basically I, I came up with a post that's called The One Superpower That All Published Writers Have. And at the end of the day, it's basically the courage to press send. Yeah. It's the courage to put your work out there because, you know, you can be a writer without doing that, but you cannot be a published writer. And that's whether you go through traditional means or self-published or what, what you do. Yep. You have to put your work out there. Um, and, you know, yes, there will be rejection. And, you know, it, it's about developing that rhinoceros hide mm. that um, that we all have. And it's it, not pretty, but it's very, very useful. <laughs> it's definitely, you need a rhinoceros hide because I you remember, do. you know, 20 years ago or whatever when I was writing something and I showed someone and it was scary just to show that someone who was a friend and to get her response. And she was really, um, uh, she was really honest. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> got to love a friend like that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, my ego took a beating, but I'm forever grateful to her, of course, uh, because you, you need to have that honesty. And I did have a period where I just thought, no, I'm not going to do it. And I just, I didn't progress with it for, for months, but some people don't progress with it for years mm. uh, because you don't have that hide. And so you just need to push through, just need to keep pushing on. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the worst thing that can happen, I mean, this is like you've got, if you're, if you're someone like me who tends to catastrophize everything, <laughs> the worst thing that can happen in this sort of instance is that somebody says no. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, that's the worst that happens. And okay, it hurts like hell and you walk around and kick the wall and, you know, whatever. Um, but the difference between those people who actually end up published and though, like our friend with the 800 rejections is the persistence to just go, you know what, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. I'm going to do this. And that's that's where it comes from. So, you know, develop the superpower, people. Press exactly. send. Lind, you have something a little bit different for us. Oh, I do. I do. I have a map. I, I, this was sent to me, or it was actually shared with me by a very good friend of mine, Wendy. Hello, Wendy, if you're listening. She um, she sent me a link to a website called wearedorothy.com, which is a really cool website, actually. It's worth having a look through the whole thing. But it's a map, and it's called the book map. And it is a street map made up from the titles of over 600 books from the history of English literature and a few from further afield. So it's like it's a street map of London and it's all lined up and it's got things on it like um, Mansfield Park and Mm. Northanger Abbey are there and Middlemarch is there and like all these like places you've read about have been popped onto the one map. The Jungle Book is off in the far reaches of the right-hand corner. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Wuthering Heights, you know, road. It's it's just a very cool little map That's and um, awesome. definitely worth having a look at. Yeah, um, definitely. We'll if put you're the interested link in, the show in notes. books and maps, yeah, as awesome. I am. <laughs> well, let us move on to our writing craft book this week. I've got a book. Of course you do. (laughs) Of course. It's one of my books. Uh, It's called Who Said That First? The Curious Origins of Common Words and Phrases by Max Cryer. That is definitely one of your books. (laughs) So do you know where the word nerd came from? 
No, but you're going to tell me, aren't you? The first known appearance of the word nerd in print was in the story If I Ran the Zoo by Dr Seuss. Oh. And a character proclaims, I'll sail to Katru and bring back an it cutch, a preet and a prue, a nurkle, a nerd and a seersucker too. Oh, there you go. There you go. I've got to tell you, those Dr Seuss books, a couple of them, I remember when I was reading them to the boys when they were little, oh, they are massive tongue twisters. Like, oh, think, yes. Oh, there's a couple of them that just absolutely used to do my head in. And, of course, they're the ones that the boys like the best. Mm. So you end up reading them over and over again and you're like, bleh, 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 bleh. <laughs> <laughs> So that went well. I love Dr. Seuss. Oh, so do I. Mm. But I'm just saying, I think it's a rocket in my pocket, one of those. It's just nuts to yes. read aloud, which, of course, is how they're supposed to be read. Of course. Mm. Well, anyway, that's a great book. So I'll put the, we'll put the name in the show notes as well because it's got all sorts of, you know, different uh, things like um, NAF off. Do you ever say NAF off? No, I used to have a friend who did, though. She was English. It was a very Eng- – I think it's a very English It is. So the word, the word NAF became familiar to British viewers in the television series Porridge. Oh. But in April 1982 – Princess Anne fell off a horse and um, she, you know, there were lots of paparazzi there and she, she sna- told them to naff yeah, off. told them to naff off. There Ooh. you go. We can thank Princess Anne for popularising it. <laughs> hmm. Go Princess Anne. What's happening in, yes, exactly. What's happening in the world of blogs? Oh, well, this week we have an excellent post by the wonderful Nicole Avery from Planning with Kids. Um, oh, yes. And anyone in the blogging community in Australia will know that she's an absolute powerhouse. Powerhouse. Of all manner of things, most yes. organised person I've ever met in my oh, life. Oh, my God. Yes. I aspire to be that organised. Yeah. Um, so she's also a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre and she's written a terrific post called Questions About Blogging as a Career. Yes. So um, if you are interested in blogging as a career, and it's certainly something that I know a lot of people are, are trying to do, she um, covers off a lot of the most common questions, you know, that people ask her regularly about blog, because she, she blogs full time. Yep. Um, everything from how she got the inspiration to set up her blog to how to actually start a blog. And there's a couple of, you know, good basic tips there, um, you know, whether it costs money to start blogging, does she enjoy blogging as a job, um, mm. which I think is quite an interesting thing because I think she loves the fact that, um, you know, she gets to work around her family and she enjoys that writing and stuff. But, uh, you know, as she said, you know, putting yourself out on the internet on a regular basis can get very, very tiring mm. and you have to get used to people discussing you, criticising you, disagreeing with you, yep. which is where, you know, never read the comments comes in. Yep. Um and she also talks about, you know, motivation and monetization and all those things that, um, you know, are the big questions around blogging as a career. So I think if it's something that you're thinking about um, or have ever, ever considered, it's worth having a read of that post and we will put the um, link in the show notes. And when, yeah, and if you have a look at the post, you'll also see that um, Nicole uh, has, you know, as you mentioned, the online course, How to Get More Blog Readers with the Australian Writers' Centre, and she's got a special code there that you can use up until the 15th of June to get $30 off the purchase price. Oh, look at that. There you go. Perfect. So it's normally 97 down to $67 uh, if you use the quote, the, the code that, um, that she has. And obviously she has the links there to the actual um, 
to the actual course as well. So have a look in the show notes and all will be revealed. All will be revealed. I think it's a great name for a course, How to Get More Blog Readers. I don't know anyone who has a blog that doesn't want more readers, including me. You guys should totally read my blog if you're not reading it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's move on to our writer in residence for this week. Who is it? Oh, this week I had the pleasure, and it was really a pleasure, um, to interview the wonderful Lindsay Kelk. And Mm. she is a UK author, a British author, but she's based in the US. And she she writes what is generally termed chick lit. And we had a very, very good conversation about chick lit and and its place in the publishing world. Um, It's obviously a question she gets asked regularly, and we discussed that as well. Um, But she's just um, delightful. And, uh, you know, she's living the life. She's, you know, all about shoes and social media. And Mm -hmm. she is absolutely phenomenal on social media. So, you know, if you are an aspiring author, and you're looking for some role models in that area I would definitely suggest that you have a look at Lindsay's um, tweet uh, Twitter feed most specifically um, where she is absolutely you know always I don't I don't know when she sleeps because she seems to be there all the time um, but yeah so here's our interview and I think that there's a lot to be learned from it so I hope you enjoy it Lindsay Kelg is a best-selling British chick lit author based in the United States who used to be an editor of children's books. The author of 10 novels and two short stories to date, she is an avid user of social media and, fittingly, a lover of shoes. Her latest book, Always the Bridesmaid, is out now. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us from the other side of the world. It's always very exciting for us. <laughs> Um, so let's start at the beginning. You were an editor of children's books and then you began writing chick lit. Yes. What brought that on? How did that sort of happen? Yeah, I mean, I'd always written. Um, I've always written from being tiny. I was always writing stories when I was little um, and, you know, studied uh, a little bit about an English degree and did some writing with that and was soundly put off pursuing it as a career by my tutor. Um, Yeah, he was amazing. He was a genuinely fantastic writing tutor, um, but he was very, very realistic and quite cynical at the time, I think, and was just trying to knock some realism into his, you know, 20-something, 19, 20-year-old students who all thought they were going to go away and write the next great American novel Mm. um, in Nottingham, England. Mm. Um, (laughs) So we were all sort of told, you know, if you're very, very lucky to make a living out of this, so maybe pursue other careers that have a writing element. So I pursued editorial, um, and that's how I became a children's book editor. Okay. Okay. Uh, Yeah, and I did that for a while and just wasn't feeling fulfilled, which, you know, sounds a little bit pretentious, but I just wasn't feeling that I'd got that, you know, I had an itch I needed to scratch. So I started writing in my spare time. Uh, and that's how the first book came about. So you you didn't, as an editor of children's books, start writing for children? Um, I didn't. Well, I'd done some, I did quite a lot of ghostwriting for children uh, and a lot of YA and movie novelizations and things like that. Uh, but I, and I didn't sort of have a plan when I opened the laptop. I just sort of started writing and saw what came out. And it's kind of a surprise because I, I love YA. I'm, I'm obsessed with YA and I always thought that that's what, if I ever wrote anything, I thought it would be that. Um, so I was as surprised as anyone when it wasn't, uh, so yeah, that it was, it just wasn't a plan. It's just what happened. It was sort of my natural voice at the time. Okay. So you weren't like a mad reader of chick lit at the time? No, it's, I'm pretty terrible. Um, I don't read terribly widely into my own genre, which, um, I think is a blessing and a curse because blessing, because it's, 
I, I'm so, I get struck so badly with professional jealousy that when I read something great, I'm like, oh my God, I should never pick up a pen again. Um, but also it's, it's good because it means I don't have that. But uh, yeah, there's so much great women's fiction or, you know, chiclet, whatever you want to call it out there right now. And I, I feel like I'm not allowed near it. I feel like I can't get close to it. Stay in your own space. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's stay here where it's safe. So how did that first publishing deal come about? Um, first deal, it sort of, I went through the traditional routes, um, which now I guess aren't traditional mm. uh, so much because it was 2000, I wrote it in 2006, 2007. So it was summer, early summer 2007, I went out with queries uh, and I you know, dutifully sent off my first three chapters to a bunch of agents. I went to the Writers and Artists Yearbook, um, looked for agents that I knew worked with writers that I felt were similar in tone or at least in genre to what I put together hmm. sent it out to so many people and then received so many rejections um that it was a little bit scary and even working in publishing as I did and saw things getting rejected every day it was still pretty painful mm. character um, building is really painful absolutely isn't it? character building yeah that's what I say now like it's that's the that feels like the worst part because it's the first time you get rejected it's so not the worst part no. <laughs> it's no. so much worse but yeah, I sent it out. Um, I did work with an agent for a while, um, but she didn't like the book that I had put out, that I had sent to her. She just liked my writing style. Mm. Um, and I really felt strongly about the book. Um, so we agreed to not work together anymore, mm. uh, and which was a pretty bold and scary move. Uh, and because I was very lucky because I had worked in publishing for six or five years at that point, um, I gave the manuscript to a friend of mine that had worked in women's fiction previously. She wasn't working in it at the time and just said, can you read this and recommend some agents to me? Mm. Cause I'm having a really hard time. And then the style of how these things happen, you know, it's 95% luck as much as anything else. She passed it on to an editor friend of hers because she couldn't think of anyone. And she thought maybe the editor would have better contacts for me. And the editor ended up being the person that signed it because oh, she really? liked it so much. Yeah. That she came to me directly and said, hey, you know, you already work in publishing, you know how the contracts work, why don't we just do a deal directly? Yeah, okay. So the first deal I did without an agent, I did it myself. Do you have an agent now? I do, and I always add a caveat to that story, which is unless you have five years of, and my job was very much acquisition and brand management, so I worked very intensively in um, contracts. Right. So if you don't have that background, I definitely recommend getting an agent from the beginning because it's so complicated and you have books to write, you know, as a writer, you have another area to worry about is if you can get that champion and that person to back you up from the beginning, the agent is so important to your career. Okay. So beyond that, like knowledge of contracts and things, do you think you brought any other lessons learned as a children's book editor to your new career? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, just having a background of the industry really helped because it helped me be more realistic about what could be achieved, um, what realities I might face, you know, like what the real the difficulties were. Because, you know, I think there's an element of it. And I've had friends who put books out and they're just so excited and they don't realize the number of books that are released each year, the, mm. the role that marketing plays in the books. Um, now social media, now downloads, digital self-publishing, there's so many different factors. You can have written the best book in the world and there are a thousand factors out there that could 
change what happens to it. Yeah. Um, okay. So I had an, an insider look at that. And I also, I think it helped me know what was coming. So I knew there would be an editorial process, which is very hard for a lot of first time writers when they get their first editorial notes back. And it's like getting your homework back covered in red pen, you know, it's, it's like, oh, but my baby, my precious, precious manuscript. And even though someone loved it and signed it, they've still just obliterated it with red pen. Yeah. Um, it prepared me for that. It prepared me for dealing with the cover stories and the cover art because, you know, you very often don't get a say in that at all. Yeah. And I knew that because I'd come from a commercial publishing background. So I knew that the cover had a job to do. You know, the cover wasn't designed to please me. The cover was designed to sell a book. Yeah. Which That's is a very hard lesson to learn as well, I think, for yeah. some people. Very yeah. hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I need to ask you the dreaded chick lit question because it's a it's a term that many authors try to disassociate themselves from yes. and that many publishers will tell you is dead, you know, chick lit is dead and yeah. And yet it sells its socks off. So yes. why do you think this is the case? Like what's going on here? I've been talking about this a lot lately. Oh, sure. um, Sorry. Yeah, no, and I'm very keen to. I'm keen to because I think there's such a current conversation about feminism and where women are and what's happening and where we want to be. And um, I think this is definitely part of it because what we're talking about when we talk about chiclet, it's used as a derogatory term. It just nine times out of ten it is. Mm. People use it to it's reductive, it's derogatory, it's used to belittle the genre. You know, it's just, oh, it's chiclet. It's silly, floppy chiclet. Mm. No one says, oh, my God, that's chiclet. It's amazing. You know, it's mm. very rarely used positively. Um, I don't care. I write stories and I love to tell stories. And what people want to call them is entirely up to them. The term chiclet was coined by a marketing team. You know, it's yeah. the marketing team decide what cover to put on your book. And the cover, to such a degree, defines what genre your book is. Yeah. I've had people insult me about my books because it has a pink cover with glitter on it so people are like, oh oh your book must be terrible I'm like I didn't design that cover That's you and you haven't even opened it you know so I find that very interesting but the whole chiclet thing and even calling it women's fiction now I, t- I you know I take umbrage with it slightly because um you, you know there's no such thing as men's fiction yeah you don't call anything men's fiction and are you calling it women's fiction because I'm a woman and I wrote it in which case that's a terrible thing yeah. because you shouldn't yeah. define it by my gender, my gender. And if you're calling it women's fiction because it has a predominantly female audience, then that's reductive because yeah. we do have male readers and we do have, um, you know, all kinds of readers across the spectrum. So it seems I just don't think there is an alternative mm. because if I say to people like, oh, I write romantic comedies, they immediately counter with, you write chiclet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, like I'm not ashamed of it, but I know you're going to reduce it and then I'm going to have to defend myself and then we're in this awful place. Yeah. And yet, as we say, there it is selling its socks off. And we had a conversation before we started here and I was saying how strong your brand was because of your covers. You know, they they are, you know, so strong. It's Yeah, I just, I don't really understand why... I and all chiclet writers have to either defend it or accept it as though it's a negative mm. thing. I just, I really wish we could find a place where everyone's comfortable with what they're going to call it. Or, yeah. whether they, or I just, it, it drives me crazy. No one's like ashamed of writing sci-fi books. No one's ashamed of writing a thriller. I was at a party recently and a girl was introducing me to another group of people and she's like oh Lindsay writes romance novels and they were oh. like oh my god and I just stood there and I I didn't know what to say because 
I won't say, well, I don't, I don't, and, and in terms of Harlequin or Mills and Boone traditional romance novels, I don't write that kind of book, but at the same time, so what if I did? Like, those mm. books are awesome, and they're the highest selling books, the biggest selling in books world. in the world. <laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to sort of, I didn't, I genuinely didn't know what to say or do, which never happens, as you can tell, I love to chat. Yeah, um, no, that's, and it's interesting it, because yeah. as an interviewer, talking to you today as a chick lit author I feel yeah. like I need to raise it as well as if I yeah. if I didn't raise it then would we you know what would we talk about sort of yeah. thing you know which yeah. is insane it, it seems crazy to me that there are just in all this talk right now of you know women oh, there has been this whole movement towards women directors need to get more you know be more involved in film and people are trying to push women storytellers in movies and you know you have the Lena Dunhams and I think there's it Rose Byrne just started a new production company where they're trying to push women directors and film writers and all this stuff film or creators and we're not doing anything about it in publishing where we're still being ghettoized and mm. you know put in this awful pink fluffy corner where we're supposed to defend ourselves and feel bad about it mm. and I just don't understand it that's what I don't get it's a hugely powerful group of women that are being published by women, read by women, written by women, and yet we're being constantly reduced. Mm. I don't get it. I just don't get it. It's interesting because I would say, you know, as um, with Chicklet, that the, I mean, we're talking about strong voices because the voice is what sells the story in yeah. so many ways. Um, so yeah, to be reducing those voices to pink and fluffy, I agree, is, uh, yeah. is really disappointing. It's kind of sad. The conversation I had as well was with other women, which was what so confused me that I think it was with two lawyers and a journalist. Oh, right. Okay. I well. sort of stood there saying, I'm an internationally best-selling, I've sold one and a half million books worldwide. I hope I mean, you said two, that. <laughs> and that's the stupid thing is I didn't because I just didn't know what to say. And afterwards, I was relaying the story, and my friend turned around and said, "Well, I hope he said that." Because like, yeah. I, I was so blown away. But I'm like, okay, you're a lawyer and you're an author, a journalist, and that's fantastic. But I've sold one point five million books. Yeah, yeah. That's two language, you know, my spiel. I can hear my publicist giving my spiel, and it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, and you love what you do, right? I love what I do. I yeah. get to tell stories for a living. I mean, that's insane. Oh, that's no, crazy. That is insane. <laughs> All right, let's move on to cheerier things. So yeah. if I'm a wannabe author of women's fiction slash chick lit slash awesome stories, what should I be concentrating on? Like, is it the voice? Is that the most important thing to get right? Or, you know, how do I make my story stand out? Yeah, for me, it's definitely that. Um, and for the other authors that I read and authors that I'm friendly with, the conversations we have, that tends to be uh, what, we have found has worked for us um and definitely for me that's what works for me I mean obviously in traditional romance publishing there are certain conventions that one has to follow yeah. um yeah. and I think that's not the case anymore I mean my mm -hmm. definitely always the bridesmaid that has just um come out it's very far away from that and I feel like it's actually quite far away from my previous books to mm -hmm. a degree I mean it's a tiny step I'm sure in the greater scheme of things but to me it felt huge mm -hmm. because it was the story of a girl and her whole life you know yes, it's not yes. focused on the romance yeah it's, I agree, and, I and to be honest and always surprise me for me the romance was the least important part of it to me the story is about this girl and her two friends yeah and yeah. um why she cannot say no and why she cannot put herself first um and she doesn't do it at work and she doesn't do it in her relationships and she doesn't do it with her friendships and 
I think that was something that was very that was important to me because that was happening with a lot of friends of mine and and I mean I just did it to myself at that party like I couldn't speak up for myself I, I was her we all do that I think yeah um so to me definitely current chick that, that's working that is the stuff that rises above that's great and that works and is loved it has that strong voice that strong character it knows what it's talking about it's not just a damsel in distress that needs to be saved mm. um it's talking about something there should be something in there that women can touch and see and say yeah and not just women I, I just did it to myself but that, the readers yeah see and say yeah. yes this this yes this you know yes. which if it's one line or if it's the whole story there should be something in there that is so true to your reader that they can hold on to it and believe in it yes. and I think yes. that means a lot that's great so are you a plotter or do you just simply start with an idea or a character and go forward or do you yeah. are you scene by yeah. scene spreadsheet no, I'm terrible. Um, just like terrified constantly, like hanging onto the laptop with my fingertips. I have no idea. I have an idea. Like as I said, with always the bridesmaid, it was the idea of this girl, and it was it was actually we talked about weddings and we talked and I'd said you know I don't want to write the wedding book. Uh, bridesmaid exists as a movie and it's so perfect. I don't want to do this. Um, and then when we talked about it, and me and my agent and a lot of my friends and everyone was getting married. I was like, you know what, it's a relevant story and it's, there's a story to be told there, but I don't know what it is yet. And then I had a conversation with a friend and she was telling me about a friend of hers who was getting divorced and she had another friend who was getting married. And it wasn't the same as in the book where it's the best friends, so it intensifies yeah. it all. But she was like, isn't it crazy that we're in a generation where that's happening, where your friends were getting married and divorced at the same time in their early 30s, late 20s? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, is that, has that happened before? Have there been generations where that's? happening every day now yeah because I feel like maybe it hasn't you know like people have got divorced obviously and have been getting married later but now it's so commonplace it's so every day that I was you know I don't think I've read that story I want to hear that story so that's how it came about and the bridesmaid journal was that a thing that well it's not that's I have a fascination (laughs) with these things I loved it and all I honestly find them fascinating and actually someone gave me a daily affirmation journal um and I was reading it I was like this is so ridiculous and I mean actually I'm sure it's amazing and I really hope it's helped some people out there but I it helped me by just making me laugh my socks off um and then I investigated it and there are all these different kinds of journals and there was a bridesmaids journal and I didn't buy it and look at it and my actually the first note I got on the book from my editor was I'm scared at how good you are at this (laughs) (laughs) how well you've written this (laughs) You could put it out as a non-fiction <laughs> supplement, perhaps, to the story. <laughs> there was actually a ton more Bridesmaid Journal stuff that we cut. Oh, disappointing. I loved it. I know, and I was like, this is so much fun. You should just cut it. I know you're enjoying yourself, but just cut it. Um, well, that actually yeah. brings me to the next question. Like, do you know when a book is funny? Like, do you know when it's funny? Like, or do you have to wait yeah, till it comes out no to see if it works? I... I usually know when I read through proofreading, I'll look at it and be like, that's pretty funny. Um, But I have no idea when I'm doing it. And I tend to be like the more panicky I get. It's actually really funny when I read it back because I never read my stuff back. But if I do readings or if I talk to someone about it and they're like, oh, my God, that bit was so funny. That bit was so slapsticky. I'm like, oh, I must have been panicking. Because when I panic, I just immediately go to, let's just do something really stupid and funny. Um, 
so yeah if I panic I just think if I can make people laugh when I'm panicking with the story then Then that will distract them (laughs) (laughs) which is ridiculous but apparently it's been working so we'll just go with that I know from your blog that you had quite a difficult year last year while you were writing this book. Now, it must be incredibly difficult to write a funny book when you're not feeling particularly lighthearted. How how did you go about, you know, working through Um, that? Well, it was, it was just weird. Yeah, as you say, it was was a tough year. My my grandmother passed away in uh, April and then my mom passed away in November. And I was actually a week before my deadline when we lost my mom. Um, and she'd been sick. She had breast cancer. She'd been poorly for a while, but she, it was very unexpected when it happened. It was all right. very quick, as, as these things often are. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was very tough. It was it was not easy. And I did just sort of spend six, seven weeks just laid on the sofa, staring at a TV, not writing, not yeah. doing anything. And my editor sending me really, I mean, she was amazing, but she would just send me emails saying, everything's fine everything's fine and I was just sat looking at the laptop every day saying it's not though is it because we've got a book out in May and it's it's January and I haven't opened the laptop and it's not done and god knows how it happened and god knows what magic we worked and HarperCollins were incredible because we got that book finished and we got it out yeah it's Um, amazing so yeah it was it's very strange I mean I definitely when I write I and I, I do know other people have said this, I'm not just completely insane, but I will just sort of go into it for 12 hours. And oh, wow, yeah, it's like, I just, once I'm into the writing, I find it really hard to come out. Right. Um, so I definitely go into sort of a zone, I guess. Yeah. Sounds weird. Um, which is why when I read it back, I don't remember having written it. <laughs> oh yeah. That's really funny. Someone oh, else wrote that. that. Yeah, well, they did, Lindsay. You you do write a lot of books. Like you're currently bringing out one every six months or so, by from what I can see. So, what do you? I mean, do you have a set writing routine? What are your secrets to doing that? I'm terrible, and I always, especially, just don't do what I do. Um, It's been your answer to everything so far. Oh, I'm terrible. I mean, you must be doing something right. Yeah, clearly. Because if I knew what it was, I would stop doing the bad stuff. Um, I'm I'm writing right now. Um, I have another book out in November, um, and I'm working on that right now. And it is, I definitely is for me. I just have to clear huge chunks of time, and just not leave the house and not find distractions, which I'm so good at, and just sit down and bash it out. Because if I take too long on a draft, on a first draft, you can tell. And for me, I can see it because the pacing is off. Right. Um, and the plotting tends to be a bit loose. Um, so I kind of, I mean, I think the books read very fast. Like they yeah. read quite quickly. They do. And I definitely have to write to that same degree of pace right. um, to get that out. Um, but I have other friends who are incredible who will just say, you know, I work for four hours a day and these are my four hours and I go and sit at my desk and I do those four hours and then I stop. Mm-hmm. And I can't, like, I, I don't finish when it's, you know tea time my boyfriend is I recently moved to LA and my boyfriend is out here and he is not enjoying my writing process at all (laughs) people call me and say are you coming over tonight and I'll be like yeah but like at nine and it it is nine and I've tried it (laughs) and I'm still in my pajamas from the morning you know I'm like oh shit I'm sorry oops like I'm supposed to be there now oh that's funny Um, yeah. But you're also doing, like, social media is part of this book, Always a Bridesmaid, yes. but it also seems to be a big part of your life. Like, you're, um, like, did you set out to create an author platform or has it been it organic? I, yeah, it's been really organic. I've been so lucky with it. Um, I remember 
Twitter, the first time I even went on Twitter, I think my Canadian publishers asked me to do a Twitter interview or something. And I was like, what is this stuff? This is crazy. So why would anyone care about what I'm doing? Um, and I just didn't understand it at all. Uh, and now I just can't come off it. But for me, it's part of it is, um, I mean, it's important. I think it's where your readers are to a degree. So you should be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you know, in the olden days, it was go and visit book groups and go to bookshops because that's where they are. And they're not yeah. there now. They're on Twitter. That's where you get to them. That's where you talk to them. But for me, it's very much I work on my own in my apartment. And the idea of going to Twitter to me is like going to the kitchen and making coffee or going to the water cooler, you know, like chatting with someone for five minutes. That's where I go to get my human interaction, which maybe is sad. So Um, do you just pop in and out all day or how do you? I'm just constantly here, there, you know, and people email me and I feel so bad because I'm terrible at getting back to emails. But I'm like, just tweet me. Like, if you want something and you want me to see it, tweet me. I'm much better at that. Um, is Twitter your fave? Is that your platform or choice? Is that Twitter. where you like to be? I love Instagram. Um, really like. I really like looking at other people's Instagrams. I'm fascinated with what people choose to put out there. Yeah. You know, and I and Instagram is the, the one thing you have to be so careful about is it's so edited. It looks like everyone's living a superstar lifestyle if you look at people's Instagrams. Like, yeah. there's no pictures of you in your pajamas eating your third bowl of Lucky Charms at ten o'clock <laughs> at night on Instagram. That's not a thing, and we're all doing it. So like, I know. I think as long as we all understand that we're all doing yeah. it, we should be fine. <laughs> the great insult, but I love Instagram. Um, I've just recently started using Periscope, which will be the death of me. Mm. Um, which I don't know if you've seen that one. It's like, um, it's Twitter. It's a Twitter app, but it's live casting. Yeah, I have seen um, that. I think I'm supposed to do something on it next week, I so I, I better find out about it. I had to do my first one, and then we did that first one staged, which was a reading of Always the Bridesmaid. The day it came out, and that was planned. And then I drunkenly agreed to do one. I made a bet with someone at my launch party, and they're like, I'll do it when I get home because I'm not even drunk. <sighs> and then yeah uh, but it was fine because I wasn't I was I was just like <laughs> getting ready for bed in the hotel I'm like hey guys um yeah and then we I think we did one the other day in the hotel where we were in Newcastle for the book signing and the hotel was insanely loud and um I was with my friend and we periscoped the ridiculously loud bar and our cocktails but <laughs> it's amazing because it's the same it's instant feedback you know and you can talk to people while you're doing it which wow. is crazy that is crazy. Mm. I better get across that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what tips would you have for a new or aspiring author in the sort of social media area? I mean, definitely get on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram. A lot of authors have great Tumblrs as well. Um, Giovanna Fletcher has a great Tumblr. Um, and see what they're saying. Start communicating with them. Start seeing who they're communicating with, like check out the bloggers, Mm. uh, check out, get involved in the community. It's a very, very welcoming community. Mm. I think, you know, I don't think I've ever had anyone not talk back to me or not chat with me. Um, And I try and chat with everyone that I can. Uh, It's only when I'm working that I'm not on there to reply all the time. Um, So, yeah, I think just definitely get in there and get involved. Don't be shy. Yeah, dive in and go on for the first couple of days, follow, read see what's there to be seen, but then, yeah, get straight in there and start talking to people. It's a huge resource. It's a huge resource. 
Um, okay. And lastly is a question that we ask everybody, your top three tips for writers. Top three tips for writers. Um, I'm terrible at this also. I'm going to stop saying I'm terrible, but I <laughs> and people are so disappointed because they want me to just tell them the, this magic source of stories that yeah, comes from yeah, somewhere. Magic doesn't. Bullet. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The magic story fairies. Um, to me, it's just uh, read as much as you can and as broadly as you can across as many genres, like magazines, websites, I don't care. Just read, put your eyes on things and see how different people's voices come together, how different people's stories come together. Um, even if you're writing, you're planning to write romance, there's something you'll find in a sci-fi novel that you'll be like, oh, that's really smart. I could use that. Um, write as much as you can. I would, I'd love to say just sit down and write your book. Um, but I know that can be scary and that first blank page is terrifying. So maybe start blogging or tweeting or, you know, just be writing um, so you can be comfortable with the words coming out of your head and seeing them. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah, just listen. Just always be listening because there are stories everywhere. And I hear, I hear so many people say to me, like, oh, I'd love to write, but I don't know what to write about. And there's no point trying to write if you don't have a story to tell because every page will be painful if you're trying to force something that doesn't exist yeah um but there are stories in every conversation you have with every human that you interact with there's a story so just be always be listening and always be paying attention I think that's really important as a writer fantastic well those are fantastic tips for someone who says they're terrible um <laughs> so thank you very much for those and yeah, thank, you thank you so much for your time today it's been really really interesting thank you love that interview Al yeah it's really interesting isn't it like I think the thing I, I the thing I thought about most afterwards was the anecdote she told about you know the conversation she had at the dinner party where mm-hmm. um you know two women asked her what she did and when she or no she was introduced to someone who wrote romance and they sort of you know why would you want to do that and sort of laughed at her and she didn't actually know what to say and mm. I found that really really interesting we had you know obviously quite the conversation around that but I took that away and I thought you know she sold one and a half million books worldwide and she had no comeback when they sort of made fun of her for writing romance and I mm. I thought that was a really interesting thing and um you know i I was surprised, to be honest, and she yeah. she was quite surprised too. Um, so yeah, but you know, definitely something to think about there. And we now, have four copies of Lindsay's book, oh, there Always you go. the Bridesmaid, to give away. And so, it is a highly entertaining read. I yep. have read it, so um, you know, yes, get in there for those. So How do we get one? Yeah, you get one by going to writerscentercomau slash bridesmaid so writerscentercomau slash bridesmaid and all the details will be there on how to uh, you know on how to enter make sure you enter before the 8th of June so hopefully if you're listening to this podcast as soon as it's released you'll be able to enter if you're listening into the future uh, sorry (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) but what you should do instead is join the newsletter (laughs) writercenter.com.au slash news and you will be we have weekly uh giveaways so and weekly competitions to to win fabulous books and other exciting writing related things so make sure you're on the newsletter let's move on though to a working writer's tip for this week so rowena emailed us hello rowena hi rowena and uh, rowena says 
Hi there, Valerie and Alison. I just want to say that I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you, Rowena. You've made Thank our you. day. Yes. I recently got to work with Alison on a trial run of her workshop for the Sydney Writers' Festival, which was absolutely fantastic. And thank you for coming to that trial run with me, Rowena. I really needed to do that. <laughs> mm. I'm so motivated now and listening to you both each week has resulted in me pumping out the words. Excellent. Mm. I was just wondering if you could discuss how to save and back up your work. I tend to back up most of my work onto an external hard drive or email myself my latest version. I have Scrivener backed up to Dropbox, but this is now full. So I guess I'm looking at affordable and easy ways of doing it. There you go. Hmm. Why don't you start? What do you okay. do for backup? Well, I just use – I have um, – I've got a, a Mac and I back – I use Time Machine, which backs up – um, regularly throughout the day. Um, so the, the, the latest version is always backed up to an external hard drive. When I get to relevant points in my, um, like sort of every 20,000 words or so, I will email myself a copy of the latest manuscript if I haven't sent it to anyone else. Like often my agent will have a copy, like honestly I've got bits of manuscript all over town. Um, oh, seriously. Um, so I will email it to myself um, to Gmail because Gmail, you know, just – is forever. Mm. Um, so I do it that I basically do it that way. It's probably not the most efficient way, but you know, I've never been particularly efficient at anything, Val. So <laughs> I just do what I, what works for me. Mm. What about you? What do you do? I also use Time Machine with my Mac. So I back up to an external hard drive, mm. uh, but I also use uh, a number of other things and you don't, you don't need to use all three because I'm <laughs> obviously being a bit overly <laughs> backed up. Uh, you only need to use one of these, but I use uh, Dropbox and my Dropbox got full as well, Rowena. So all I did was just paid the five bucks or whatever extra to get extra memory. It's, it was really very cheap to, to, to upgrade. And um, so that's how I got more memory into Dropbox and I haven't filled that up yet. I also use Google apps. So I, you know, store uh, documents on Google Drive, but it's stored not only in the cloud on Google Drive, but also locally on my computer. And because I have a, a laptop for when I travel and a desktop for, you know, my desk, uh, I, it's backed up on both those devices as well. But wow. I also use SugarSync. Wow. SugarSync you is... You are the most backed up person <laughs> I've ever spoken to in my life. Yeah. Um, you, SugarSync is um, not as popular, but it's extremely wonderful and effective, I find anyway. But it really does the same job as Dropbox or Google Drive. So it's just that I started using SugarSync before Dropbox and Google Drive became popular. So it was my first kind of backup, you know, app. And I just sort of stuck with it because even when the other two became... Um, apparent and I also back up on cubby cubby is much is much it's much more expensive so you might not want to do that one um but cubby effectively does a similar thing to the others but what I do back up on cubby that I don't back up on the others is my photos because my, I have many many photos and they're really really you know they take up huge files and cubby is just more effective with those large with those large files. But if you're just talking about Word documents and Scrivener documents, the others, um, Google Drive, uh, Dropbox and um, uh, uh, SugarSync are perfectly fine. With Scrivener specifically, because you've asked for that, I do back up Scrivener on Dropbox for sure. Uh, my Scrivener documents on Dropbox and have found them that to be, you know, perfectly, perfectly fine. Yeah, 
So there's okay. my backup. My strategy. mind is officially blown at this point. God. Wow. Okay. Have you had a disaster at some point in your life that brought you to all this backing up? Uh, no, but I've had a disaster at, after which I have been grateful I've had the backups. Okay. Yeah, all, sure. Did you need all of them? Pretty much, or like 99% of them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, it was in one of the last, it was maybe about a year ago, um, upgrades of uh, on, on your Mac, on the operating oh, system. Do you know what? I haven't done it because I've heard so many bad, oh, bad stories about it. Yeah, well, it, I lost everything. Oh. Everything. I was freaking out. and But thankfully, I had 5,000 backups. <laughs> so yeah. I, I could get almost everything back except for the last day or whatever it was, um, you know, because it didn't back up to right to the minute of it, of it happening. But, yeah, there you go. So I hope that's useful, Rowena. We'll put links to those things in the show notes as well. Yes, please do because everyone's just sitting there going, oh, my God. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> Okay, so that brings us to to almost to the end of our podcast. What are you doing this week, Al? Uh, let's see. Well, apart from, you know, videoing myself, yeah. um, which I'm so excited about, I am, what am I doing? I'm working on um, a new manuscript and I am working on um, a potential new course and that's about it for this week. I'm Exciting. sort of having one of those, yeah, I'm just sort of picking my way through different projects at the moment, working out what, you know, I'm going to focus on next. What about you? What are you doing? What am I doing? I'm also working on a potential new course. Uh, I'm helping one of our experts in uh, self-publishing and eBooks because we're going to turn that into an online course Mm because so many people are interested in, you know, what the mechanics are, you know, even just to find out what's involved so they can make a decision as to whether self-publishing is right Mm -hmm. for them. Mm. because it's not right for everyone. No. And I will also be busy podcasting uh, my other podcast, So You Want to Be a Photographer, with uh, Gina Militia because she's going away uh, overseas to take lots of photos of exciting, exotic locations. So we need to get a few in the can before she, before she chuffs off. Right. But where can we find you on social media, Al? Um, you will be finding me quite a bit on Twitter this week, um, mm. which is at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll also find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And all of my bits are in one place at alisontate.com. All of my bits. That's probably the best place to start, really. <laughs> so if you want to see Alison's bits, go yeah, to alisontate.com. <laughs> You'll find me at Valerie Koo on all areas of social media. And we would love to hear from you. If you want to ask us a question, please do email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au or shout, give us a shout out on uh, social media. That'd be awesome. If you have 30 seconds, to leave us a review on iTunes, we'd be really grateful because it really helps us in our rankings and we read every single one of them. So thank you to those of you who've done that. We really appreciate it. But that brings us to the end of our time together this week. Oh, (laughs) I'm so sad. Thank you, everyone, for listening and we look forward to chatting to you next week. We do. Bye. Bye.